Hey everybody, this is Jeremy Allen, producer for Solutionaries. Just a real quick reminder on what Solutionaries is. It's our digital first show. You can find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash solutionaries. It's all about highlighting and shining light on creative thinkers, doers, problem solvers in our communities that are helping to make a positive impact. So far, they've done that with several big issues, including making streets safer, voter rights, food insecurity, uh, making our schools safer, and so, so many more. Uh, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, check that out. Um, Share, please, because the more you share, the more people know about these solutions and the better I think it gets for everyone. So if you were with us the first episode, you talked all about police community relations. Now, on the heels of that, we wanted to go back to one of our solutionaries that we talked to. His name is Chief Jakari Young, and he comes from the Daytona Beach Police Department. In that first discussion we had with him, Chief Young talks all about his perspective on race, on his position, on being a black man who is treated differently depending on the clothes he's wearing in public. More on that in a minute. But we wanted to go back to Chief Young, one, because he's unfiltered, two, because he's insightful and thoughtful, and three, because we feel like he has the ability to say things that a lot of people can't, knowing both sides in some ways. And so Solutionaries host Lewis Bolden got back together with Chief Young over a Zoom call and discussed several things again. Many of those things are race-related, but Chief Young gives insight on where we were, where we are now, what's happened, and why he thinks things are the way they are. So please take a listen to Lewis Bolden and Chief Chikari Young. Hi, everyone. I'm Lewis Bolden, and welcome to Solutionaries, the podcast. Chief Jakari Young started his career with the Daytona Beach Police Department in April of 2001. Chief Young has worked in various operational and administrative capacities with the department, including the patrol division, criminal investigations, special response team, crisis intervention team, and the Office of Professional Standards. Chief Young holds both bachelor's and master's degrees from Bethune-Cookman University in criminal justice and criminal justice administration. In January of 2017, Chief Young was appointed to the rank of deputy chief, and he took over as chief in November of 2020. Chief Young was involved in our very first Solutionaries project, and he was the most talked about interview from that first episode. Chief Young, welcome to the show, and I am looking forward to talking to you because my first time interviewing you uh, was spectacular, and I just thought you were so candid, um, and you had so much to share with our audience. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for the invitation to come back on. Um, You told me something I didn't realize. Maybe you told me and I forgot. I didn't realize that that was the very first one. I didn't realize that. So that that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, when um, we, it was originally for uh, online because it is uh, uh, a digital show, but then we aired it on TV. And after we aired it on TV, again, we got a lot of comments um, about you and how candid you were. 
Um, it is Monday morning, and you have had a busy weekend, so I do want to start there, Chief. Can you fill our audience in on what happened in Daytona Beach over this weekend? So this past weekend at approximately about 11.45 a.m., I received a phone call that uh, we were working a person shot at one of our local hospitals. It was the Advent Health, um, and it's probably about uh, a little less than three miles from police headquarters. So it's literally right up the road. So initially it came out as an active shooter incident. So my phone start, starts to blow up uh, with media requests trying to confirm whether or not it is an active shooter. But basically what we were dealing with, it's a very sad situation where you have an elderly couple and the husband uh, was terminally ill. And apparently there had been conversations over the past three weeks between the husband and wife that if he continued to decline, uh, he wanted her to end it. So she ends up uh, bringing a firearm into the hospital room. And I think the, what, the way it was explained was he wanted to do it himself. So she actually put the firearm in his hand, but he wasn't strong enough to pull the trigger. So she ends up pulling the trigger for him and ending his life. And then the plan was for her to end her life. Uh, but as our negotiators arrived on scene, we established a dialogue with her. And luckily, uh, prayerfully, uh, she decided she couldn't go through with it. So after a few hours, we were able to distract her and take her into custody. So it's a very sad situation. If you look at um, all the comments and, and all the, the commentary that's been out there, you know, everyone's referring to it as a mercy killing. And the discussion is sparked as far as should what took place be allowed? Because I guess I'm learning now that this is something that's legal in Canada from what I'm being told. But, you know, we know uh, as sad as the situation is, it's illegal to kill someone because they're sick. So she was arrested and charged and uh, will we'll remain in communication with the state attorney's office uh, as they decide on uh, how they want to handle it moving forward. But right now she's out there and uh, she's out there on a no bond. Okay. Chief, um, you hit on a couple of things. Um, number one, um, this, this issue of mercy killings. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But there is a more immediate uh, issue of hospital security. Do you have any concerns about hospital security after this incident? I'm going to be honest with you. I have concerns about security everywhere. I have concerns about security in schools. I have concerns about security in churches. I have concerns about uh, security in shopping malls, in movie theaters. I have concerns about security everywhere. And it's just unfortunate because we can't be everywhere all the time as far as law enforcement. But we just have to look at where we're at now as far as just active shooter incidents. They've occurred almost any and everywhere you can think of. They, they've occurred at uh, parades, in shopping malls, uh, in churches, in schools, in hospitals. So for me, it's bigger than just hospital security. Uh, it's security in general, and I don't have the answer for it. I mean, we can always do things to improve security. We can put up 
metal detectors everywhere. We can have folks standing there with wands. And I think all of those things would help. But I don't know if I could sit here and say that all of that stuff is going to be like completely foolproof as far as stopping what's going on. Uh, so, yes, I have concerns about hospital security, but I have concerns about just overall security in general. Chief, it is an ongoing discussion for sure. The other issue that you brought up was uh, mercy killings. And some people um, describe it as dying with dignity. Um, And Chief, I know that what the law states that if you take a life, that then you have to be arrested for that. Um, So we know what your job is and what your department, what your department's job is. But I have to ask you, do you have personal feelings on this topic of dying with dignity? I do. Um, you know, I'm a man of faith. I'm a Christian. And my Christianity says it's a sin to take a life, even to take your own life, because God has a plan, right? So um, that's just my personal beliefs. Uh, but people have the right to feel differently. No one wants to suffer. So I get it. So I understand that side of it, too. If it's inevitable that you're going to pass away and it's only a matter of time uh, and you're laying there suffering, why not just end it? Why not just end it? I understand that part, too. So you asked me just my personal opinion and I just, you know, shared with you my personal uh, values that um I personally don't believe in that, but I would never condemn someone that does, so to say, because that's not my job either. My job is to enforce the law, obviously, and obviously it's against the law to shoot someone because they're sick. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's where we are. Uh, but, you know, personally, it's, it's against uh, what I believe in. Chief, thank you so much for that. Um, Chief, as I mentioned earlier, it was our it was our first Solutionaries uh, project when we interviewed you, and I looked back over uh, when we did that interview, and a lot happened with your department yes. after that interview. You lost uh, two officers, uh, one from COVID, one in the line of duty. Can you tell me how um, losing those officers impacted you and impacted your department? So you correct. You are correct. A lot has transpired since that very first uh, Solutionaries interview when we sat down and talked. And um, I honestly had no idea what I was going to be up against uh, as the police chief because you've mentioned I lost uh, Officer Jason Rayner who was shot in the line of duty on June 23rd of 2021, and he passed away 55 days later on August 17th. Uh, Then I lost Officer Adam Webb on September 1st. He contracted COVID and passed away due to complications. So I believe anytime you have an agency that loses an officer in such a a tragic way, like, you know, being shot in the line of duty, what that does to the organization, um, it's very hard to overcome. So a lot of folks, and it's not just here, but I'm just speaking in general, you're going to lose 
people. You're going to lose officers uh, just based on the trauma that they've been exposed to as a result of uh, responding to that scene, uh, seeing their peer or just hearing about their peer being shot and then going through uh, that whole law enforcement uh, grieving process and the funerals and the viewings and, and everything that goes with uh, an officer killed in the line of duty. Um, they say time heals all wounds, but I'm consistently saying now that that remains to be seen uh, as it pertains to that loss, because we did lose, we lost uh, a few officers as a result of that. Um, but even outside of uh, the, the deaths, um, we had to correct our salary. So I'm glad I had the support of the commission and the mayor and the city manager to where we were able to get a $3 an hour raise last spring. Um, and we needed that basically just to stop the bleeding because of everything we've gone through over the last couple of years. Um, just people looking at where we're at, a lot of cops were making decisions like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to stay here knowing we have a high call volume knowing that we're running short staffed when I can go to another agency, make more money and get more of a breather because we are by far the busiest, busiest department uh, in this County. Uh, we have a lot going on all the time. You know, we're a special event driven city. Uh, and then sometimes we get these crime spikes to where it's just a lot. We just have a lot going on. So it was really important that we got that raise in place just to kind of stop the bleeding. And now we're doing something creative where we've partnered with uh, Daytona State College and we have our own cohort. So right now I have 15 recruits in the academy. Um, I have another nine that's already certified that's starting what we, what we refer to as our phase one in uh, February. And then I'm starting another cohort in March. So just from the summer into now in January, 2023, we've already cut our vacancies in half. So things are starting to turn around. We're a completely different agency than what we were two years ago. So uh, I still feel really blessed. Um, we have a lot of community support here. And I think uh, that makes the difference. Even when we went through something as tragic as we did with the, the shooting death of, of Officer Rayner, the outpouring of support from the community, that was huge. Because I'm not sure every community has that, but I feel really blessed that we have that community support here to where they really stepped up and showed a lot of love to the members of this department. Uh, which went a long way. It truly went a long way. If it were not for that community support, uh, I probably would have been dealing with more of an exodus than what we dealt with. And Chief, you were losing officers through uh, resignations and retirement. Um, yes. And so something like that, losing officers definitely takes its toll. And you actually had to change the way you were operating after those deaths. Tell me about I believe it was called Park and Walk. Yes. So one of my very first initiatives as chief was the Park, Walk and Talk program. And it's all about getting the officers out of their patrol cars for at least 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes in a 12 hour shift. And I just want them out on foot making general contact with members of the community 
when there's absolutely nothing going on. Because I think I mentioned it in the very first solution areas where if the only time we come in contact with members of the community is when they call us because something has happened, then that's a fail. They need to know us. Um, they need to know the officers that work there in their neighborhood and the officers need to know the people that work in their neighborhood because ultimately uh, without that community support, we would be highly ineffective. So that was basically one of my first initiatives that we rolled out was that park walk and talk program. But then after officer Rayner uh, was shot in the way he was shot in that parking lot, um, I was dealing with a lot of grieving officers who were rethinking their decision as far as going into the profession to begin with. So we had to go through a healing process. We had to encourage counseling for a lot of these officers. So I suspended that program for a while because I knew what they were feeling in that moment. And I felt like it was important that we just took a step back from that, um, take a breather, let's reassess, let's uh, you know get together with our community, have some meetings, um, but now we have, we've started to resume that. We've started to resume that. I had to change my, my level of expectations because I knew I had an agency that was grieving the loss of one of their own. And Chief, was it, did you also have to stop that program uh, for the time being because you're, it made your officers so vulnerable given what happened? I mean, was part of the reason because you didn't know what your officers would be walking into on the street? Right. I mean, there's a reality that we have to accept that some folks are offended merely just by being approached by law enforcement. And that's why de-escalation is so important. It's those initial words that are spoken that can determine the outcome of, of a situation. Because some folks for whatever reason, most times we don't know what we're walking up on in law enforcement. We may be approaching someone just to make a positive interaction, see if they need anything, but that person has an open warrant. They know they have the open warrant. We have no idea they have the open warrant. That person may be armed. They know they're armed. We have no idea that they're armed. So there's always a risk whenever you have a police officer that's approaching anyone on the street because we don't, if we don't know that person, we don't know, you know, if they're wanted, if they're armed, what their intentions are. So all of that was taking into, all of that was taken into account when I was asking my officers just to, you know, be more present in the community, get out and, and, and make, you know, positive contacts. Cause there's a risk anytime we do that just for those reasons, because some folks, they're offended merely by being approached. So it's almost like as soon as you approach somebody, you got to start that de-escalation process and make sure they understand what your intent is when you, while you're approaching them and when you approach someone. Chief, I believe we did that last interview uh, in May of 21, I believe it was. So it's coming up on two years. Um, but in the last year and a half, after losing those two officers, you, it took a toll not only on the department, but also on you as well. And um, 
some of the comments that people were making about you as a police officer. Can you talk yeah, about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're in the moment, when you're dealing with tragedy, when you're dealing with tragic loss and you're trying to uh, keep a department moving forward, um, it's just a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't really have time to sit back and look at comments on social media in the beginning, so to say. Um, but once I did, I sat back and I did see that there was some stuff out there and people have a right to feel however they want to feel about whatever the situation is. And I knew that when I stepped into this role, I was going to have to have thick skin and broad shoulders because that's just what it is. But I did see some comments out there. Um, and I'll admit, I let some of that stuff affect my spirit for a little while. Um, but I had to kind of work through that on my own and then realize that, you know, those that know me, know me. And if you don't know me, you don't know my heart, you don't know why I took this job to begin with, then shame on you. And, you know, that's just something that I had to just get over. And I, I learned how to just by simply staying out of the comment. So that'd be my advice for anybody in a position like mine. You're going to make unpopular decisions and people are going to have opinions. Do yourself a favor, stay out of the comments. Chief, that is very good advice because that is something that everybody is dealing with now. Even, even small children are dealing with what they call internet trolls. So can, yes. you add, can you tell us specifically some of the comments that bothered you? Well, you know, you're going to have folks that... Um, they look at me as a black male, as a police chief, and you have a white police officer who was shot by a black male. So they look at it and they feel like because it was a black male that shot a white police officer, somehow I'm supposed to condone that. Somehow I'm supposed to be okay with that because I'm a black male. And when you have comments like that, to me, that truly gives life to that statement that ignorance is life-threatening. So the, that was probably the main trend that I was seeing. And that's just stuff that, you know, I can't even spend much time really letting that like marinate my spirit because, like I said, people have the right to feel however they're going to feel. But I think the, the overwhelming majority of people with any amount of common sense they know better than that. I think it's very interesting um, that you got those comments. When we were doing the first solutionaries, we were talking about policing in America. And generally, we were talking about how some people uh, have been treated in the past by police officers. So I think it's very interesting um, that when a black man shoots a white police officer, race still becomes an issue. I have, uh, whenever I do a story that even remotely shows a police officer not in the best light, I always get emails from people um, saying, why don't you stop with that Black Lives Matter stuff? Or if the person would just listen to the police officer, that wouldn't have happened. The Black Lives Matter comments always concerned me because People act like those two things, Black Lives Matter 
and law enforcement are mutually exclusive. People act like you can't support one without supporting the other. If you support one, you can't support the other. But you are right in the intersection of that. And how does that impact you? Well, that's a lot, Lewis. Let's go. That's a lot to put on me in one question. That's a whole lot to put on me. So I'm going to try to peel that onion for you. I'm going to do my best to try to peel that onion for you. So when you talk about the the Black Lives Matter and then you have the Blue Lives Matter, obviously I am both. I am a Black life and I am also a Blue life, right? So I understand what you're saying is people want you to pick a side, Mm -hmm. right? A person in my position, I cannot, how can I pick a side? You know, obviously I'm a, obviously Black Lives Matter because I am a Black life, right? I'm, I'm a black man even before I am a police officer because I'm going to be a black man way after, prayerfully, way after I'm done with my tenure in law enforcement. So, of course, you know, Black Lives Matter. And also as a police officer, it bothers me when you have officers that are killed, multiple officers that are killed uh, every year, and you, you, you barely see any coverage on it at all. It's kind of quite sad when you have officers that are out there that are doing the right thing, that they're they're good people and they're out there trying to be upstanding public servants and they're gunned down and they're killed. And there's very little to any coverage of that. So that bothers me as well. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to our discussion with Chief Shikari Young. And, and just for the record, for anybody listening, you can support Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. You can support Absolutely. both. Absolutely. Chief, the, the comments, the social media comments that you were talking about earlier, does that criticism hurt more when it comes from the black community? Um. I don't, I, I wouldn't say it hurts more. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer that. I wouldn't say necessarily that it hurts more when it comes from the, the black community. I mean, folks have to understand uh, why some of us go into law enforcement. Everybody, everybody goes into law enforcement for a different reason. I personally went into law enforcement because I was a victim of crime. So it's like everybody needs to understand their why is where I'm going with this. Like as a kid, I was the victim of crime. I can remember I was a latchkey kid growing up. So my mom was a single mom. She gave me a key and lunch money. So it was my job to get to school, get home from school, call her once I was secure in the house after school. So I can remember on a couple of occasions, I would get home after school and my house had been burglarized and the entire house was completely ransacked, right? So I call my mother, my mother calls the police, the police show up and I still remember the officer's name. He's long retired now, but it was officer chalk and he was a black male and he responded to my home, um, and it was how he treated me. It was how he explained the process of what they were going to do as far as the investigation. 
Um, and it was how he did his job that first got me interested in law enforcement because I wanted to be able to do my part to make sure that others that experienced that same type of crime or even worse crimes knew that there were people out there that cared and wanted to track down the folks that are responsible for victimizing them. And then I also had an experience um, right before I left South Florida to come up here to Daytona Beach where I ended up, I was coming home from the store and I was always a runner. I ran track, uh, I ran hurdles. Um, so I just decided I wanted to run. So I literally took off running down the street and I wasn't jogging. It was a full out sprint down the street. And probably about 50 yards in, I hear a police siren. Like he's, 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 he's on me to stop. So I look over my shoulder, I could literally see my house. And then he starts to yell, hey, stop, you need to stop right now. So I stopped and I realized, uh-oh, I don't look like a jogger. I think I had on jeans, some sneakers, a button down shirt, and he stopped me solely because I was running down the street in a full sprint. So I think automatically he assumed he just did something. He stole something. He did something to somebody. It is not normal to see uh, a kid running down the street uh, at that pace in the middle of the day in his attire. That contact sticks to me to this day because I remember that officer went back and he checked my story. He went back and checked to make sure I came from where I told him I was coming from, but then he circled back to me later on. But when he circled back, he was very humble in his approach because I think he felt bad because he realized he could have potentially traumatized me hmm. and I did absolutely nothing wrong. So we can say he stopped me because I was a black male and I was running down the street, but I can't say that for certain. He could have stopped me if I was a white male or Hispanic male running at the pace that I was running in the attire that I was wearing. But that story stuck with me and I carried it into my career. Mm -hmm. So I'm always thinking about that as I'm out in the community and I'm dealing with people and I'm approaching people. Like we can't be so presumptuous of, of, of things all the time, but all of that kind of went into my decision to go into law enforcement to begin with. And as we sit here and I talk, I don't even remember the question you asked. <laughs> well, I'm just talking. We're just having a conversation. Well, that's what we do. That's what we do is have conversations. But you, I mean, those are two very different experiences. One is a very positive experience, and some would say the the second is a not so positive experience. It worked out, you know, in the end. Um, but not everyone has. Um, had those positive encounters with law enforcement so positive that it shaped you and made you want to go into law enforcement. So was that the most, was that the um, only experience that you have had with uh, law enforcement growing up that could possibly be perceived as a negative experience? Uh, overall, yes. I mean, I, I got a couple of traffic tickets uh, prior to starting the police academy. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, I was speeding. So okay. I can't be upset. You know, I can't be upset if I got stopped and I got wrote a ticket. But it was really um, that one incident because, you know, I see it. My, my perspective has changed being in law enforcement for 21 years. But no one could have told me at that time. And I was 17, I believe, mm -hmm. that the sole reason I was stopped was because I was a young black male. Like that was my, my whole mindset at age 17. Mm. 21 years later, I might give that cop the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Because in the end, he didn't jack me up. He didn't throw me on the ground. He did raise his voice, but I complied. Mm. And that's where it stopped. Did the race of that officer make a difference in your 17 year old opinion? No, it didn't. It honestly did not. Okay. It may for others, but for me, it honestly did not. Chief, one, during uh, our first interview, um, I asked you a question um, and I did not expect the answer that I got. And I asked you if you could describe to people what it's like being a police chief and a black man. And I expected a very diplomatic answer um, and for you to dodge the question, and you did not do that at all. So can you explain, can you tell people what that's like? And can you tell me if you think it is getting better, even a little bit better over time? Well, I hate to answer a question with the question, but when you say getting better, may, maybe it'll help me if you kind of refresh my memory on what my response was when you first asked me that. When uh, your response was, you gave an example of being in a department store. Uh, and when you're in your uniform, that people will come up to you and talk to you and they'll talk to you for 20 minutes. But when you're not in your uniform, you have seen people, women clutch their purses um, and act like you could be there to do them some harm. That was one of the examples that you gave. Yeah, that was a that was a real life experience. It was in a big lots. It was in a big lot store and we were on a crowded aisle. And I remember um, there's one female. She kind of glanced over at me and she did the, the whole perch clutch. Mm Hurts -hmm. clutch thing, and I just kind of chuckled because, um, you know, she has no idea that if someone were to, in that moment, come into that store and try to do her harm, that I would have been the first one to step in um, and try to uh, get her to safety or, you know, get the situation under control. Uh, but I think that's just uh, the reality of, of, of where we are. And you asked me if it's getting better. Um, that's a tough answer for me because, you know, I made history here in Daytona Beach as the first African-American police chief. But when I go to police chief conferences in other states, they scratch their head when I say that mm. because black chiefs are so common in other areas of the country. It's like, what do you mean you're the first? I'm the first. There's, there's never been an African-American chief before in Daytona Beach. Um, but that's foreign to them. So I don't think my experience 
uh, could be generalized for other African-Americans that serve in this capacity because it's just different in other areas of the country, if that makes sense. Talk to me about what you do, um, how you train your officers um, to make sure that these incidents are limited in Daytona Beach. So um, the first thing we do is we make sure that our use of force policy centers around the sanctity of human life. Right, so that is the number one piece to all of it, is making sure that the sanctity of human life is at the center of all of our policies. Um, I can't take credit for this. I would have to go back to police chiefs, but it's now the sheriff, uh, Mike Chitwood, when he was the police chief here, he made sure that we were one of the first agencies in this state to be issued body cameras. So the entire agency uh, has a body camera and that's all about accountability and transparency. Because I think you know, and everyone else knows, we live in times now where law enforcement no longer gets the benefit of the doubt. So when something happens, that camera needs to be on so that the powers that be and the community can go back and review uh, what took place. But just jumping back into the policy, um, I think all of us nationwide, after the George Floyd incident, we had to take a look at our overall policies and procedures and just make sure uh, we implemented certain things, outlawing chokeholds, making sure there's a duty to intervene, um, so on and so forth. But the most difficult part about all of this is you can't put a policy in place that governs common sense. And that's probably the most difficult part about this whole thing is, you know, we hire from the human race. And, and in knowing that we know there is no such thing as a perfect human, whether they have a badge and gun or not a badge and gun, and none of us are immune from the trials and tribulations of life. And you have officers that go through things in their personal lives, and then some of that stuff may carry over to when they're on duty, and they end up responding in a fashion or in a way that they shouldn't because of things that they have going on in their personal lives. As far as uh, the boundaries of what's acceptable versus what's not acceptable, we have to realize that Sometimes these officers uh, are going to end up in a situation and they could be in a fight for their life. So at some time, sometimes they're going to have to use improvised actions. Mm -hmm. I realize that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that duty to intervene is key and common sense, which is what we can't really gauge. We can't teach. We can't train that common sense. But the hope is that someone on scene, if it's more than one officer, someone on scene is going to be able to take a step back and realize, hey, we're, this is going too far. Mm -hmm. um, we're, a little, we're a little bit too heavy handed here. Um, let's back off. Let's reassess. Uh, let's do, you know, whatever we need to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I want them to keep themselves safe, too. So there's like a fine line there. Uh, we have to we have to do our, our best to gain control, but not lose control. 
if that makes sense. That does make sense. And Chief, that was one of the solutions uh, from our first solutionaries. And it came from a young man who had an encounter with Daytona Beach police officers. Anyone who's listening can go back and find that first episode and, and get up to speed on that. But one of his uh, solutions, one of his recommendations was, why don't officers police each other? And when I brought that to you, it was, again, one of those situations where I expected you to have a very diplomatic answer and say, well, if people would just listen to law enforcement officers, none of these incidents would happen. But you actually agreed with him that officers should police each other. I agree with him on that point, mm -hmm. yes. But when I think about that incident, I think there was a lot of things, and we're not going to go back into it, that, you know, that particular uh, individual could have done differently, that could have changed the outcome of what happened. But at the end of the day, um, I want to hold these officers to that higher standard. And I don't think I'm any different than any other police chief. In policing in 2023, um, in a perfect world, we would show up on scene and we would garner respect from whoever it is that we're encountering. They'd answer us, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and they would comply. Mm -hmm. But in 2023, if we're doing this job and we can't handle disrespect, we should almost expect it. Mm -hmm. It's sad, but it's true. I feel like we should almost expect it. So we have to be prepared to hold ourselves to a higher standard and not let someone pull us out of character and not let someone, you know, have us act unprofessional because they're being unprofessional towards us. If they're not complying, we're going to do what we need to do in order to gain compliance. But I believe we can do that and we can still be professional. That's one reason that I was in agreement with signing a contract for on patrol live so we're actually on the show and it airs every friday and saturday night from uh, 9 p.m to midnight um and on that show we're showing we're showing the whole country how we police hmm. uh we're going to catch the bad guy if you run we're going to chase you we'll tase you we'll do what we need to do to get you into custody but once you're in custody we're going to pick you up we're going to dust you off if you need water we'll get you water and then we'll send you off to the branch jail. So it's all about we're going to do our job and we can still do our job and be effective without taking it too far. Chief, where is that airing? It airs on the Reels Network. Okay. It airs on the Reels Network. I, I don't I have Spectrum, um, but I don't know, you know, how others may find it if it if you can find it online. But uh, we've been on there since uh Biketober Fest. Yeah, we kicked it off by Oktoberfest weekend. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people would say that's a brave move to put your officers live on camera like that. But it sounds like that sounds like you're confident in what you all do every day. I'm confident in what we do every day, and folks want transparency. And what greater transparency than having uh, live cameras on these officers? And I don't force them to do it. I ask for volunteers and those that volunteer and have volunteered so far have all been great representatives of the department. 
Chief, before we run out of time, I want to circle back to something that we talked about earlier, because this is something that affects everybody, and that is social media comments. I am surprised when I hear of the age where that starts for even kids, comments on social media. And you said to me, um, you said earlier that um, after losing two officers, some of the things you saw on social media um, got to you. And you talked about how you dealt with it. You told me recently something that I thought was very powerful. You said social media does not always give you an accurate read of reality. Can you can you talk about that? Well, um. I realized, and it all centered around my officer that was killed in the line of duty. Um, Social media will have you believe that the overwhelming majority of the folks uh, hate the police, they don't trust the police, uh, they support what the suspect did, so on and so forth. And I think I really let that affect my spirit. But then once I started engaging heavily into the community, I realized how much love and support we truly have. I really, I see it, I feel it. And I'm just extremely grateful for this community for that. Because, um, you know, as much as these officers were affected by it and myself and my team, Um, And then you see this stuff on social media, but then once you get out into the community, the people in this jurisdiction that I'm charged with serving, um, when I felt that support, it just showed me that just what you said earlier, like it gives you a warped perception of reality. Mm -hmm. So sometimes getting out of the comments and getting into the community can give you a better sense of reality. That is that is great advice. Chief, exactly. thank, thank you so much for doing this. I have enjoyed this interview as usual. I appreciate you being so accommodating and so candid with us. We're going to follow your career. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. I appreciate that. Maybe the next one we can actually do it in person. Um, but, you know, and I intended on being over there today, but we're still uh, dealing with inquiries in reference to the hospital incident, so I kind of had to sit tight today. I, we totally understand, Chief. We totally understand you have a lot going on over there. So thank, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please share our podcast with your friends. Go to our YouTube page. Make sure to hit subscribe youtube.com slash solutionaries. Uh, Again, if you have any ideas of other solutionaries, other people that are fixing problems in your area, we want to hear about them. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment. Send us an email at solutionaries at grammedia.com. That's G-R-A-H-A-M media.com. Thanks again. See you next time. Solutionaries is a Grand Media Group production.